Hey, this, this series that we're in, this is an important series for us because this is part of who we are as a church. This is part of the culture of the church. I want, I want to read a chunk of Scripture out of Deuteronomy. It's in uh, chapter 6. I want to read verses 1 through 4. It says, These are the commands, and the, the decrees, and the regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. This is Moses. is, is, is the, the birth of a nation here, right? We're, we're finding in Scripture. And this is, this is Moses giving to this nation what God had given to him. And it says, You must obey them in the land that you are about to enter and to occupy. And you and your children and your grandchildren must Fear the Lord your God as long as you live, if you obey, right? The, 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 the tone of this is about obedience. If you obey all his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. So listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. And then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And here comes verse 4. It says, listen O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Or in the King James, it says, the Lord our God is one. This is called the, this is a famous prayer in, in, in Hebrew culture. It's called, the, it's called the Shema. And the reason why it's called the Shema, they pray it multiple times a day, is because it starts with this word, listen, which in Hebrew gives us the word Shema. And in the Hebrew language, what is interesting is there is not a separate word for listen and obey. Now, in the English language, we want those to be two words. Can, can we agree on that? Most cultures want there to be a different word for listen and a different word for obey because in between those two words, we want a choice. We want a decision. We want to decide after hearing, will I be obedient? Now, that's important in earthly relationships, but in Hebrew culture, the idea of listening to God, the Hebrew word for Shema, means to both listen and obey all at the same time. It's two sides of the same coin. They did not have a separate word for each, which is why every time would you read throughout the New Testament where Jesus would use phrases like, he who has an ear, let him hear, or how oftentimes he would use the word listen, he was speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. That meant something to them. What, what they were hearing every time he said that was Shema. What they were hearing every time he used those words, even if he was speaking Aramaic, they were hearing culturally the word Shema, which meant that God is speaking. It's our responsibility to respond with obedience I want the reflex of my heart to be one of obedience to God. This is what this series is all about. It's one of the four parts of our discipleship strategy here at City Life Church is that throughout my life, when I get to the end of my days, am I more reflexively obedient to God then than I am now? And as we think about the different areas of our lives, this graph becomes important to us because we all have areas of our life where we are rebellious. We all have areas of our life where we are reluctant. And hopefully we all have areas of our lives where we are reflexively obedient, meaning that it's easy for me to say yes to God when I feel his tug in my heart. And this is going to be part of this journey throughout all of our days, to the end of our days. I want more of my life to become reflexively obedient than it is rebellious throughout my life. I want more of my life to become reflexively obedient than I am reluctant throughout my days. Good intentions, though, people are not enough. Now, you can say, Fred, I'm going to do better tomorrow. And you can say that every day for the rest of your life. And you know what you're not going to do is better. Right? At some point, you have to have a strategy. At some point, you have to bring some effort 
And that's what this series is about. There's a diagram that's going to pop up on the screen. We believe that if you're willing to do the heavy lifting in these five areas of your life, which Don Gelpie, a Jesuit priest in the 70s, came up with these five conversions, which resonates with my heart so much, which is why we've been teaching it. We teach this series every few years in our church. If you're willing to do the heavy lifting of these five conversions in your life, then just this idea of wanting to be more reflexively obedient to God doesn't just have to be an empty intent, that you can bring intentionality to your effort and you can change as a person. Effective conversion, Pastor Justin gave us that last week, phenomenal sermon. If you were here, a part of that. I'm going to do just a brief recap for each of these definitions before we do the one that we're going to talk about tonight. Effective conversion happens when a person takes personal responsibility for his or her emotional healing and development. All of us have hurts in our lives. Every single one of us have soul wounds, and we've got to be willing to take on the responsibility to get help with those things. If you didn't hear that sermon, you should go back and listen to it. It was an amazing message. Thank you, Pastor Justin, for bringing that. And I have there in parentheses, covenant community. You cannot do the work of effective community effectively unless you're part of a covenant community. That's what church is supposed to be. A covenant community is a community that's also loving. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but it's also loyal. It's loving and loyal. Because if you're going to do the work of dealing with all of your hurts and your soul wounds, how many of you know it gets messy? Right? And you want to be a part of a covenant community, which means that people aren't just loving, but they're also loyal. So at the point when it gets messy, that they don't say, hey, I'm out. This is too much for me. If you're part of a covenant community and you're beginning dealing with the hurts of your past, sometimes the hurts are with the people that you're in community with. And if you're in a covenant community, when it starts to get messy, those people don't take a step back. Come on, they, st- they take a step closer. They take a step closer. Effective conversion. Intellectual conversion involves taking responsibility for the truth or falsity of one's beliefs by examining and testing them, which means that some of us, or dare we say all of us, have things that we believe to be true that are not and they're blind spots, you and I need to be a part of a diverse community. If we are not a part of a diverse community and everybody that we're in relationship with thinks exactly the same way we do, votes exactly the same way we do, looks exactly the same way we do, grew up exactly the same way, we guess we call that an echo chamber, and that's a dangerous place to be. If you're willing to be in a diverse community, then you're going to have the opportunity for people to push against some of the false thinking that we've brought into, and all of us need that in our lives. Moral conversion means being responsible to cultivate habits that embody the moral warehouse that one has embraced and to live according to a broader social responsibility. This is being a part of a discipleship community. All of these things are part of the culture of here at City Life Church. Discipleship community is important because when there's something in our lives that is contradictory to the moral boundaries of Scripture, we want to be in relationship with people that love us enough to say, hey, could we talk and challenge us when we've lost our moral compass? Religion conversion is where we're going to wrap up 
the series, possibly next week, begins by making a vow of devotion to Jesus and confessing Jesus' right to have authority over every aspect of my life. It's called being a part of a gospel-centered community, which we just talked about here a few moments ago. Tonight, we're going to do this one. We're going to talk about a social, socio-political conversion. Socio-political conversion involves accepting responsibility to seek the good for all humans and to work strategically with others to challenge and convert the wider world as well. It's not talking about converting the wider world to Christianity. That's part of religious conversion. When it's talking about converting the wider world, it means that that as Jesus followers, we unleash on society an example of what it looks like to be others-oriented that is so inspiring it causes other people to live their lives differently. It sounds a little bit like Jesus, does it not? you got to be a part of a loving community if you're going to do this work. You want to be around people that are already trying hard to make this happen. You, you want to be around people that are already saying, I don't want my life to center around me. Okay, let me rephrase that. I want my life to center around me, but I know that's not healthy. The nature of our humanity says, hello, I would like to be the center of all things. But something inside of us, when we make a vow of devotion to Christ begins to push against that desire and say, hey, there's a different way that's a better way when you begin to consider the needs of other people oftentimes ahead of your own. Somebody say socio-political. Your vocabulary is going to grow here at City Life Church. Socio-political conversion involves accepting responsibility to seek the good for all humans and to work strategically with others to challenge and convert the wider world as well. Listen to this thought. Social and political are terms we use here in this conversation, not because we're talking about changing the way we think about society and politics, because that's part of intellectual conversion. Social-political conversion is about shifting my mindset, listen to this, away from only me to always we. Let me rephrase that. Social-political is about shifting my mindset away from only me toward always we. Me meaning that you do not abandon your own needs. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is making sure that we're being ever mindful of the needs of other people around us. And even when we use this Christian phrase of putting the needs of others before myself, which we get from Philippians chapter 2 and many other texts in the Bible, it doesn't mean that you are giving up on your needs. It means that you're saying to other people, no, after you. It's like if you're going into a store or a restaurant or the workplace and you open the door for someone and you say no after you, you still go in, you just let them go first. And this is part of the Christian ethic of saying to other people no after you. Oh, you're not ready for this next question. Have we embraced an American dream at the expense of displacing and, dis and supplanting a superior biblical mandate? Have we embraced an American dream at the expense of displacing and supplanting a superior, superior biblical mandate? Genesis 12, 1 through 3 reads this way. The Lord said to Abram, he hadn't changed his name yet, 
said to Abram, leave your native country and your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Come on, we call that the Abrahamic Covenant. Let me read you this poem. It's by Emma Lazarus, penned in 1883. It's called The New Colossus, referring to the Statue of Liberty. It says, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name mother of exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips, give me your tired and your poor and your huddled masses yearning to be free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. So good. We believe in an American dream. I believe in an American dream. I believe in what the Statue of Liberty stands for. I'm proud to be an American. I'm not proud of everything that America is, but is not every citizen of every nation able to say that to some degree? Because none of us belong to a perfect place. But even if it's not perfect, doesn't mean that we can't be a patriot. I think of myself as a patriot of this great nation but I am a citizen of heaven first. I am a citizen of heaven first. And at some point, we have to make room in our heart to be a citizen of the nation that God birthed us into in this temporal realm. Work to change whatever nation we call home, fighting to correct the imperfections that it has. But if we have been welcomed home into the family of God, if we have made a vow of devotion to Jesus, at some point, my citizenship in the kingdom of heaven has to transcend whatever loyalty I have to the nation that I call home. See, there's something called an Abrahamic covenant, which I just read to you that is defined this way, it is unmerited divine favor is bestowed upon the recipient for the purpose of blessing and serving others in the name of Jesus. An unmerited divine favor is bestowed upon the recipient for the purpose of blessing and serving others in the name of Jesus. Galatians 3, 29 says that if you are Christ, then your Abraham's seed heirs according to promise. So when you, when you read that in the Old Testament, where God talks about blessing, he's also talking to us. Look at what he says at the end. He says, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, prophetically speaking of Jesus Christ. Throw the slide back up, can you, Kinsey? I'm going to back up and go back to American dream. 
I want to contrast these two together. American Dream says this, the ideal by which equality of opportunity is available to any American allowing the highest aspiration and goals to be achieved. I like that. I believe in that. I want to live for that. I want to fight for that. That's important to me. It's one of the reasons why I think of myself as being a patriot. It's one of the things that causes me to be proud of my country, as broken and as imperfect as it is. And I want to live the rest of my days doing my part. It's called citizenship, to make that ideal available to all people. But never at the expense of this one. Give me the Abrahamic covenant. At some point, there has to be something inside of me that says, which ones of these draws my greatest loyalty? And for me, walking as a follower of Christ, a husband and a father, raised three children, I want them to see someone that's fighting for an American dream, but even more than that, I want them to see someone that's modeling for them what it looks like to live out the Abrahamic covenant in our lives. As a person that believes that we have divine favor that is given to us, that we do not deserve, that we cannot earn, that it's gifted to us because God loves us, yes, but even more so, so that we can be a blessing to other people to serve those who are around us. Can I just argue you're going to do a whole lot better at working at the American dream if you're living out the Abrahamic covenant? Hard questions for us to ask each other tonight. Has an American cultural attitude created a filter for me over Scripture? Let me read that one again. Has an American cultural attitude created a filter for me over Scripture? All of us have biases. Biases, all of us have filters. We, we believe that God's word is completely and totally infallible. The problem is that I am a fallible person reading this book. And this is also part of what it means to be in a diverse community. Because sometimes we're going to take certain verses, and because of the filter that we have, because of our life experience, because of our gender, because of our soul wounds, because of our nationality and our ethnicity, all of those create filters that we see things through. And I want to have other people that don't have the same biases that I have so they can challenge the biases that I have, and then I can challenge theirs in a loving way. Because I want to understand God's word with greater clarity. I think one of the greatest challenges the Holy Spirit has in being our teacher and understanding God's word is fighting through the filters that we have picked up in life along the way. And part of this journey of discipleship is about shedding those things. Do I see the Great Commission as serving or winning? Come on. Vanessa and I were just talking the other day. We were, because we're old. Okay, let me rephrase that because I'm old. I married somebody much younger than myself. Woo, that was close. That was close. I'm old and I married so much younger. Just rewind that part and just pick up with here. I'm old and I married so much younger and more beautiful than myself. So, yeah, I'm digging out. And we were talking about how when we grew up, one of the songs that we were taught to sing is Onward Christian Soldier. Anybody, right? I mean, so much of 
of, of, of what evangelical Christianity has been has been about conquering. Now, is there a conquering theme to Scripture? Yes, there is. Right? We, we sing about it tonight. But it's not about conquering people. It's not about conquering people. That's what Paul talks about in, in Ephesians 6 where he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers on high. Why did he say that? Because even 2,000 years ago, they wanted to conquer people. And Paul said, no, that's not what the gospel's about. It's about rescuing people. Do I see the Great Commission as serving or winning? Because if winning is the most important thing to you, which it has been for me too often in my life, I find that it makes me a very poor candidate to serve others well. Am I mistaking Christ's authority over me as myself having authority over others? Am I mistaking Christ's authority over me as myself having authority over others? This is part of the journey. If you're going to do the work of sociopolitical conversion, if you're going to find your heart moving in this journey of transformation to the point where you become others-minded, where empathy begins to grow inside of you for other people, you've got to be willing to wrestle with some of these questions. You've got to be willing to challenge some of your allegiances. And if there's anybody who showed us how to do it, it's Jesus himself at the Last Supper. I'm going to read some verses to you out of John 13. I love how this message fell on this first Saturday where we share communion together. I'm, I'm going to read these verses. They're going to pop up on the screen so you can read along if you'd like. And, and, and then I, I want to share a thought with, with each one of these. This is John 13. I'm going to break it down to 1 through 5. Then I want to share a thought. And then I'm going to do 6 through 11, share a thought. And then I'm going to do 12 to 15. It says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. This, this is what sets Jesus apart from every other religious leader. Right? There's a lot of religions in the world. And all of them were started by a person whose existence began here in this world, just like yours and mine did. Jesus is different because we believe in the preexistence of Christ, that he existed before he was born here, and then he returned there after his resurrection. Right? That's why phrases like this are dropped in Scripture to help us understand these beliefs that are, that are important to return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything that he had, that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist. Right? Do you see what happened here? I call this the Bible giving you whiplash. It's what follows doesn't seem to fit with what just happened. Listen to what it says. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. Now, it seems that it would follow in that moment that he would have destroyed Judas, who's about to betray him, and then that he would have established himself on a throne here on the earth, right? That seems to be what would follow if this were a Marvel movie. But it's not. 
That's what it says. With all that authority, with all that power, what does he do? He got up from the table, he took off his robe, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And he poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. See, when we understand who we come from, when we understand where we are going after this life, we are no longer afraid to serve others. We, we don't feel such a driving need to compete with others because our identity and our security comes from knowing God created us and that heaven awaits us. Let me read that again. Our identity and our security comes from knowing God created us and that heaven waits for us. The story continues beginning in verse 6. It says, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, no, Peter protested. You will never wash my feet. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. So Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. And Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you, for Jesus knew who would betray him. And that is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. Listen to this thought. Jesus says here, your feet only. Now, this means lots of things, but I think this is the most important part. Jesus is saying your feet only is his way of warning against what I would call universalism. Jesus is telling us that his death and his death alone will cleanse us of our sin, but we must come to him. The imagery of the feet. We, we've got to choose to take some steps towards him. He did the part that only he could do, but there's a part that he requires of us. Jesus is telling us his death will cleanse us of our sin, but we must come to him. Salvation is still by grace, but that grace is not appropriated until I come to him with my own personal and sincere vow of devotion to Christ. The story continues in verse 12. It says, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher. You call me Lord. And you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. We are commanded to wash each other's feet because someone who has been saved should always be someone who now serves. Let me read that again. We are commanded to wash each other's feet because someone who has been saved should always be someone who now serves. This command by Jesus was because he knows that human nature always drifts 
towards rugged individualism, and Jesus came to change that. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. As they're coming, let me share this thought with you. We are in love with communion because Jesus is easy to love. Is he not? He's easy to love. And we easily celebrate what we gain from his death. We understand the gift of salvation that comes to us through his sacrifice. We neglect washing the feet of others, whether it is an actual moment of washing someone else's feet in a spiritual practice, which we have done here on Saturday night before, and if you've ever participated in that, you know what's powerful. Whether we do it actually or whether we're just thinking about it prophetically as we serve others. We neglect washing the feet of others because people are often unlovable. And we don't easily celebrate putting the needs of others ahead of our own. You've heard me say this before. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why the Lord's Supper practically, and I don't think it's ever going to change, but one of the reasons why practically throughout the world we only eat the bread and drink the cup and don't wash the feet is because we're enamored with what Jesus did for us. But it makes us uncomfortable his example that he calls us to, to serve other people. Don't, don't you love that when Jesus went to wash his feet, their feet, that he didn't do it because they deserved it. He did it because of who he was. And this is part of what it means to be a devoted follower of Christ. It means that at some point, there are certain areas of my life that have to cross a threshold where I stop doing for others and saying to others based on what they deserve, based on their own merit, and I begin to do and say to other people and for other people because of who I am, not because of who they are and what they've done. Stand with me. Jesus, help us to not just follow your example Help us to become your example. For each one of us who have had a sense in our lives of you saying welcome home to us because we took our first spiritual breath when we made a vow of devotion to you, Jesus, and were born into your family, oh God. Help us to grow into the person that you called and created us to be. And help us to never forget that the standard that we measure by, Jesus, is through your life and your life alone. Help me to be a person that relentlessly and recklessly loves the people around me. Help me to become that person that relentlessly and recklessly serves other people. Help me to be that person that relentlessly and recklessly says to the people around me, no after you. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.